that's your place our hearts will cry these bones will sing Please take a moment, greet those around you. Students, you are dismissed at this time. Please bow your hearts and, and heads with me. Dearest Lord, we come before you this morning in gratitude and awe for what you have given us. Jesus said no one can come to you unless you call him. Help us please to appreciate that you have called each of us personally to be first fruits in the kingdom of your son, to be his bride, to share in future work and privileges in your dimension that we can't even begin to imagine. And even now, while living in this world, before you come for us, you have given us another gift, the invisible and mysterious Holy Spirit, who lives inside each one of us to be our helper, our guide, and to be the voice of Jesus to tell us who we truly are. In this world, we hear voices constantly telling us we should be more successful, more popular, more beautiful. They're the voices of the false shepherd Jesus warned us about. He said his sheep would not recognize this voice, but rather they would know the voice of the true shepherd who would lay down his life for his sheep so that they might have abundant life. So dear Father, please help us be, keep centered in Christ, teaching us daily to be guided by the Holy Spirit so that someday when we appear before the judgment seat of Christ to answer for the things we have done in the flesh and to receive our reward, we will hear him say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sherry, thank you so much. Uh, we love it when people in our congregation uh, lead us in prayer, and it's a completely intimidating thing, isn't it? Until you do it, and then you realize, you know what? That was pretty neat. And, and so thank you. That was a beautiful prayer. Don't let Sherry intimidate you. Let her be a role model for you so that <clears throat> if you're asked to, to lead us in prayer, uh, that would be fantastic. It's a great gift. So thank you for giving us that gift of holding us up to the Lord. Well, uh, great being together in worship. And you see this series we're in, Understanding God's Presence in Your Life Changes Everything. Uh, how do you know about God's presence in your life? How do you learn to listen to Him 
How do you learn to walk with him? How do you learn to be in relationship with him? This is the thing we're talking about in this series. And I'm so excited today that Scott Schimmel is back in the house. Scott uh, is somebody we love and uh, <clears throat> value, and it's been, a, it's been great having him be a, a partner and a friend in ministry uh, over the years here at Loyola Community Church. And so thank you for coming back today. And uh, you know how there's those people that just walk into a room and light it up? Well, Scott's not one of those guys, but um, he... He is earnest. He's earnest, and that goes a long way here. I'm just telling you, earnest goes a long way. Now, actually, Scott is a spectacularly equipped uh, communicator, and he brings authority and empathy. And what that means is he's willing to be vulnerable enough to tell his story in a way that lets us understand ours. And in that process of being vulnerable and open and telling us his story, he becomes a person of empathy. That is, we all of a sudden say, hey, that's my story you're telling, too. So the big question we're asking today is, is why do we do what we do? Why do we do what we do? If all behavior uh, is meaningful, if what we do is connected to some meaning in it, something we're, we're living out of, some truth we've embraced, something we've assumed is true about us, uh, that starts to answer the question, why do we do what we do? And, and, and answering that question helps us understand God's presence uh, in us changing us. And so this is the big thing that we're dealing with in this series, and specifically, a key part of this is what we're talking about today. So I can't think of a better person uh, to bring that message than help us process that question. Why do we do what we do? And what does it have to do with understanding God's presence at work in us? So Scott, thank you for being here today. Let's welcome Scott Schimmel. Good morning. It's, uh, it's really fun to be back, despite the roast. Um, I think it's, it's actually easier, it's easier to ask the question, why do they do what they do? You ever ask that question? Why, did, why does he do that? Why did they do that? Uh, yesterday, we spent the day at Disneyland, and uh, I told Steve in the first service, we're going to do, we haven't done it yet, but we're going to do a tithe and offering for my family for the debt that we owe for what we did yesterday. Just getting to the park, getting in yesterday for the five of us. I guess it was a peak day, which means they just randomly say we're going to charge you a lot more today, but we'd already committed because my sister's family's in town, and it was $836 just to get in yesterday. Yeah. And it was a big debate because my wife, the way that she does Disneyland, not growing up in Southern California, you know, remember when you get married and you're like, why, do you, why does she do it that way? I grew up in Orange County, so when we went to Disneyland, we'd go for an afternoon. When she goes to Disneyland, she goes to the last firework, and we're barely then walking to the car. So yesterday, I knew I was speaking here. We have a long day today. We got sports games. We got a trivia fundraiser that I'm emceeing. It's like a long day. I said, can we please, please leave before fireworks? And she said, why would we do that? Why would we do that? So I'm a little hungover today from Disneyland. So were my kids. I missed a giant spot shaving. I didn't dare open the door, let all the steam out of the bathroom. So... If you see me up close, you'll notice. But there was a moment yesterday at Disneyland, or my, my wife and I had about 30 minutes just on our own, just on our own, or my sister and her husband took our kids on a ride that we just didn't want to go on, frankly. But we were sitting there and, and, and watching people. I don't know if you've ever done that at Disneyland, but the DMV in Disneyland, you get to see a very cross-section of the world. And the big question we kept asking ourselves is, why are they doing that? Why is that whole family, why do they have matching shirts? Why is that grown man wearing that costume? Why? Why do teenagers look that way now? Why? Why do people come here? <laughs> why did we spend all this money? Uh, and, and we tried, I, I was raised in a family of uh, critique and criticism that was like a sport, whether we're at an airport at Disneyland, just to people watch, but for the sake of our own critique and, and contemptment. So I... I work hard. I worked hard yesterday not to go there, but it's difficult when you get to see all these different sorts of people, and you're standing in line with them for 45 minutes. But why do they do what they do? Why do they do? Isn't that what we are all talking about these days as we watch political news? Why, why do they do what they do? And we seem to be in an age where it makes less and less sense than ever. Why do they do that? Why did they do that? Why did they think that way? Why did they vote that way? Why did they do what they do? There seems to be less understanding. So this morning is, a, is about maybe returning a little bit of that understanding, which I believe starts with asking us the more uncomfortable question, why do I do what I do? 
So that's what we're going to look at. And, and, and we could have a long, long conversation. Whether you look at different lenses, through the lens of AA, through the lens of uh, uh, unprocessed trauma or unprocessed grief, there's a lot of different lenses to look at that question. We don't have time for all that, but we do have time to look at a story that Jesus shares with us about helping us understand what does it mean for us to be human from a Christian perspective. And I believe that the story we're going to look at, it's, going to be very instru- it's been very instructive to me over the years. It's a story I return to over and over again. Because moving from why do they do what they do to why do I, what I do what I do, it's, it's, it's uncomfortable. We need to be invited into that gently. I, was co- I coach a lot of sports. If you've heard me speak before, I often talk about the, my kids' sports teams. And right now I have two. I couldn't say no. I, the league asked for another coach. I said I'd love to before I told my wife. And so I've got two, two teams, rec soccer, my daughters. So I've got a 10, 11, 12-year-old team and a, and a 6- and 7-year-old team. 10- and 12-year-old team is uh, uh, terrible. Uh, and they're 0 for 8. Uh, we almost tied once. Uh, and the other team, my younger daughter's team, is 8 and 0. And they're, they're winning like 7 nothing, 8 to 1. And so now I've finally realized it's not about my coaching ability. It's about the talent that you get. But last Saturday, I missed all the games yesterday, but last Saturday I was coaching the little girls team. So remember, these are 6 and 7-year-old girls. And I'm in the game, I'm on the sideline, I'm, and, and at that age, you're being very directive to where the girls are and where they go. And I saw some commotion, I heard some commotion. I know on the other side of the field, the referee had a, some sort of break in the play and was speaking to an adult on the sideline. And then I, I sort of noticed the league president being called over to talk to some parents, but I didn't know the story. But I heard the story later because apparently one of the parents on my team, now I have to figure this how, how to do this, one of the parents on my team happened to be sitting on the other team's sideline. And it was a mom and a grandmother cheering on their daughter. And a parent from the other team took great offense. So some, like, how dare you sit on our sideline? Remember, these are six and seven-year-old girls in a rec soccer league, which means, like, very amateur, very bad soccer. And apparently the way that the mom on our team reacted was, Oh, don't you dare to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cheer louder for my daughter on this sideline. And so the game was disrupted. All the girls were watching, because it was so far on the other side of the field, I couldn't quite make it out. But the entire girls were watching mom and grandma yell at another mom, and it turned into an hour of just like chasing each other around the field. Bad sportsmanship, bad character. This is what the moms are telling each other, loudly, with swear words, in front of six and seven-year-old girls. Why did they do that? Why do you do what you do? I practiced this week. I was coaching the, my older girls' team. And mind you, these girls have gotten bigger, stronger, certainly than the six and seven-year-olds. And so in, in some ways, it's, it's cool because it turns into real soccer, at least more often. Real, oh, that was a real pass. That was real spacing. That was real soccer. But these girls are also, they've gotten bigger and stronger. And so there's one drill, and the, and the girls, as they've gotten more comfortable with each other, the more it's difficult for me to manage this team and, and their 10, 11, you know, 12-year-old girls. And so I was trying to switch drills in the middle of this practice. At the very beginning of the practice, they just were out of control. They weren't listening. So I said, switch up. Everyone, kick your balls over here as I'm walking over towards where the net is. And so they're all kicking the balls at me, and it's all on the ground. And, and I'm like, all right, stop, just hit, you know. I'm in that kind of coach mode, coming from a long day of work, coming from difficult conversations. I've just walked right into practice. Uh, carrying all that, and as I'm saying, trying to tell them, stop kicking the ball so hard at me, I turn, and as I turn, I take a ball square in the face. I saw lights, my jaw rattled, uh, I have not felt, that was like a sucker punch right in the face, and it was by the girl that's about my height, so she can kick. She's our goalie, she punts down the field. She kicked it hard, and at, in that moment, what do you do? What do you do? And there were, I checked to see if there were other parents around. There were. So what I decided to do, <laughs> I took a long lap, two laps around the field. And I, I mean, honestly, it took a lot for me just to walk back. And I'm walking about 100 yards, and I'm thinking, how do I actually get the whatever I need to go back into this practice? She didn't mean to. I know that. But that really hurt. That really hurt. My lip is bleeding on the end. I mean, it if this was, I don't know, at a bar, I would have gone. Like it just, it elevated that in me. I finally made it back. 
And I was so happy that the girl who kicked it was crying. She felt so bad. I was so happy about that. I'm like, she has a soul. That's good. <laughs> My work here is done. I didn't feel like I had to yell at her. But what I noticed at the end of the practice, last 20, 30 minutes, we had a scrimmage. And in that scrimmage, I'm like in the middle of the field, and we're you know, blowing the whistle, stop, freeze, why did you do that? Let's, let's talk through this. And what I find myself doing, I didn't, I didn't process that pain. I didn't yell. I didn't run. I didn't kick a ball at them. Maybe I would have at the boys. <laughs> Turned and kicked it right out of them as hard as I could. I didn't. What I did was, my uh, 10-year-old daughter, Grace, she's in, the, she's in the team. And I found myself just chirping at her. Grace, what are you, why, why did you pass that way? What are you doing? Like, I'm just ramping up. Other girls, hey, Quinn, let's try to do that. When it turns to her, Grace, run. Are you kidding? Are you still doing that? And the whole time, she's, she's almost, I call her a tween, so she's learning the art of the eye roll. And that kind of, you know, triggered me a little bit more, I'll just be honest. And uh, I'm just getting intense and more intense with her. And what I noticed was on the way, practice is over, on the way to the car, she's like 20 steps ahead of me. Not walking with me, there's no one else there. Grace, slow down. Still walking. Grace, slow down. Still walking. We get to the car, and then I came to my senses. Literally, that's, what it, that's how long it took. Came to my senses. I said, Grace, let me just, don't say anything, let me just explain. Can I just say something? She said, yeah. I said, I got hit in the face. She's like, I know. She's not looking at me. I know. I said, that really hurt. That really hurt. I mean, it's just, I don't know if you can kick, it's really hurt. I said, I didn't know what to do, and I have to be honest. I took it out on you. And then she goes, I know, Daddy. Hurt people hurt people. This is something, a phrase that I've told her over the years. I know, hurt people hurt people. I go, yes, yes. I was hurt, and then she said, and then you decided to hurt me. I'm like, yes, that's exactly what happened, and I'm so sorry. Why do I do what I do? There's different lenses, and I'm not talking, what we're not going to talk about this morning is what do we do when we're punched? What do we do when we're reacting? What do we do when we're in it? What I want to talk about is why do we do life the way that we do? Why do we do life the way that we do? We're going to look at a passage of scripture. It's in Luke chapter 4. I'm going to read it and then walk through it. And there's three specific questions I'm going to ask you about why you do what you do. And you're probably, you're probably going to resonate with one, maybe two. That's like a core driver. And we're not going to get deep into the psychology of your unmet needs when you were a child. But we, you could go there. There's a therapist I can refer you to. But I want you to at least be listening to why do, you know, what, what is the core driver for me? And what we're going to look at is Jesus, not necessarily as a king or a prophet. We're not even going to look at necessarily the historical look at Jesus. We're going to look at Jesus as a wisdom teacher, which means he's going to, he teaches us about life. He teaches us about seeing, about seeing life as it is, ourselves as we are, helping us go from unconscious to conscious. And so let me pray as we open up this passage. Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you that we can have conversations like this at church, that we can actually come here every Sunday look at scripture, reflect on scripture, and hear and listen to your spirit. And I pray that you would do that for us this morning. Help us to uh, be clearer about who we are and why we do what we do. Help us to hear and see what it looks like to align our lives, become more conscious, to, uh, to listen to your voice, to live in your reality, your truth. And so we ask that you would speak and, and help us to hear from you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is in Luke chapter 4, and it's likely a familiar story to you, and uh, it, it comes across to many as kind of a mystical, uh, metaphorical passage, that you can, which I think means for many of us, we can kind of just read it and kind of, oh, okay, interesting, and carry on to the next part. Uh, but what has just happened is Jesus, this is the start of his, you'd call it the start of his public life, his public ministry, which was precipitated by this very public baptism that Jesus had out in the, in the outskirts of uh, civilization and, and this and the river, and by uh, he was baptized by his cousin, a guy named John, who's kind of this uh, hippie meets prophet meets dude in the desert. And this is what happens to Jesus right after the baptism. It says, uh, Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River, and he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, the desert, by himself, where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing all that time and became very hungry. And then the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, 
tell this stone, tell this rock, this stone, to become a loaf of bread. If you really are who you say you are, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. But Jesus told him, no, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone. Then the devil took him up and revealed to him all the kings of the world in a moment of time. I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them because they're mine to give to anyone I please. I will give it all to you. I'll give all the, all the kings of the world to you if you'll worship me. And Jesus replied and said, well, the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, big, huge building, the highest point of the temple, and said, if you're the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, he's going to order your angels to protect and guard you. They'll hold you up with their hands, so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. But Jesus responded, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. We go a slide. Uh, what we often, what we often think about as we come to church is, um, this maybe unspoken question, what does it mean to live well? What does it mean to live right? What does it mean to live good? In a, in a Christian church, we come and say, what, is, what does God say about what it means to live well? How do we construct a life? How do we live life? How do we build a life that's good, true, beautiful, built on principles? That, that's the large construct. What Jesus gets into here, we're going to look at these three specific temptations. Go to the next slide. Temptations of ways in which we are tempted to build a life for ourselves. Ways in which, without even thinking about it, and that's, I, I love the phrase that Steve used earlier, that, uh, that we're unconscious to. It's real, it's powerful, but we're not necessarily aware of it. It's right below the surface. But it drives what we do. And so the first one we're going to look at, go to the next slide, is this idea that I am what I do. Uh, it, it's a temptation. Uh, if, if I want to live well, if I want to do life right, then I want to do. And based on likely your life circumstance, your family upbringing, what you heard, what you saw, you got a specific definition of things that good people would do and things that bad people would do. Or maybe you don't put in those terms. Respectable people, successful people, not successful, not. So we gain, we gain this definition, and then we've been living out of that unconsciously. And so when you think about why you do what you do, why is it? And people who I think are particularly tempted to believe this or that this is their kind of unconscious definition, when you have a day or two when you didn't get to do much, you notice. You notice more than others. While some person, one person would say, a free day? Amazing. You know what I'm going to do? Nothing. I'm going to watch Netflix. I'm going to maybe do a, a grocery run. I'm going to go see friends. Another person would say, I did nothing today. I accomplished nothing. I'm not valuable. I'm lazy. And maybe you wouldn't say that out loud, but you would hear those voices. I didn't do anything today. I didn't do anything. I didn't get anything done. I didn't advance the cause. I didn't accomplish the mission. I didn't do anything. Now, I'm tempted to believe this uh, in a couple different areas of my life. I work a lot in consulting and coaching in public schools. And so often the question comes up, uh, what do you do? And so I've learned over the years to try to phrase that in a way that makes sense. And, but a lot of times what's behind that question in public schools is, what have you done? What have you done that gives you the authority, the right to come into this domain and offer value? And the hard part for me is nothing. I have got nothing. <laughs> I've done nothing. I, did, uh, I had an accounting major, and I went into college ministry. And I dabbled in churches a little bit. And now I'm coming in to consult principals and superintendents on how to do curriculum for students, for an entire ecosystem. Uh, and the question is usually, what, did you, what have you done? What's your teaching background? What, what kind of classroom? What level did you teach? What's your, where did you get your admin credential? And I just tried to get out of that question as quickly as possible. I use clever things like, well, I mean, if you needed someone else from the inside to really reform things, you would have done it by now. You need someone from the outside. And people are like, some people are like, oh, yeah, that kind of makes sense. But eventually, there's a big deficit there. And so how have I uh, kind of reconciled that? I've brought people onto the team that have credentials, admin credentials, have run schools, run districts. So then I say this collective we. We have been school teachers. We are a bunch of... <laughs> and it's, but it's still a sense of who am I? What have I done? The other part is I often also work with uh, transitioning veterans. Most of them have been Navy SEALs for the last five years. If you want to feel a little insecure in what you've done in your life, I would encourage you to have a chit-chat with a Navy SEAL, a combat-tested 
platoon leader of a SEAL team in a combat zone. Just go and try to talk about what you've done to impress them. And in fact, a, a few weeks ago, there's a, there's a ranch out in Ramona that has been purchased by a, a, a former a, a man who died in combat. His family purchased a ranch, and it's, it's being used by SEAL teams and their families to come out and just uh, get therapy, get uh, marriage counseling. It's this beautiful place and, and beautiful space and mission. And I was out there for an entire day working with some transitioning SEALs, and I left at night. Most of them were spending the night. I wanted to get home. I left at like 9.30 at night in the dark, and the ranch is a big ranch, but it's about 30-minute drive on a small, narrow dirt road. And I remember that there's no cell phone. But I plugged in my phone at the house where there's Wi-Fi, plugged in the coordinates to get home. And it wasn't really a problem coming up. Just kind of come up the hill. There's a few turns. But on the way down, uh, it was like the sixth time that little Siri lady was telling me, uh, rerouting, in 600 feet, make a U-turn for the sixth time. I was going uphill, side hill, downhill, uphill again, and I started to panic. I'm not kidding. I was not panicking, though, of, like, I knew, worst case scenario, I'd just sleep in the car, wait till it's daytime. I wasn't really worried if my wife would wonder where I am and send out a search party. I was worried that I would find my way back to the ranch, and all the SEAL guys would be like, what are you doing here? You got lost? You couldn't find your way out of here? I'm like, anyone want to escort me down? That's what I was worried about. Like, please, God, don't make me go back to the ranch. <laughs> I'm lost. I'd rather sleep in the car with Mount Lyme. Why do you do what you do? Go to the next slide. There's a question, and you might write this question down. Uh, what is it? What is it that you do that feels like fulfills you? What is it that you do that defines who you are? When someone, whether it's at the soccer field, the grocery store, the church patio, asks the question, what do you do? I don't care as much about what you say, but what does that feel like as you talk about it? Well, I'm just, uh, I was going to, but I, what sort of rationalization? And just to pay attention to that, what's going on there? What's unresolved for you? That's the first temptation Jesus asks. Do something. If you are so valuable, so chosen, so loved, prove it. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not, I couldn't, I could do that, but it wouldn't get me anything. Second one, next slide. The second big temptation is that you are what you have. Now, we're in La Jolla, right? So this might be a particularly sensitive topic I'm going to push on. Then the devil took him up. This is in the story. The devil took him up, revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I'll give all of this to you. Look at what you would have. Look at the resources you would have. You never have to worry again. Look at what you would have. Look at what you'd be able to do with that. There's a temptation there. One of the things that is, uh, uh, I'm still, I'm working through actively is the fact that I am still driving the 2006 Toyota Corolla that was a stretch to buy in 2006. My son is a car guy. My son loves cars. And he's always like, so when are we going to get a new car? When I drive into it, what, when it triggers me, is when I drive into a parking lot, honestly, at the soccer field, next to peers of mine, neighbors, friends from church, and I see their new cars. And I've worked out this really funny sort of, have you read Rich Dad, Poor Dad? I'm smart because I'm investing in this car for a long time. I mean, I, so, I mean the real people have wealth. They don't buy new things. They, 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 you know, but at its core, at its core, it's just like, ah, uh, what's my value? What's my worth? When I go online, when I go to social media, Facebook, Instagram, and I see high school friends, people I don't even know, people I never knew, but I see what they have. I see what they have, and all of a sudden, I'm spinning things. Well, I could have, and maybe I should, and why haven't, and what's those sorts of conversations? Again, this is kind of the unconscious stuff. There's a very interesting research study where people who are on their dream vacation, like their absolute, we planned, we've saved, we, this is it, this is our 25-year anniversary, this is St. Andrew's Golf for me, this is Maui for you, this is wherever you are, but then you go on social media, you go on Instagram, you go on Facebook, and on that vacation, you're in it, you're doing it, this is amazing, and you see someone else, and they're on a different island at a different resort, or they're playing band and dunes, or they're playing somewhere else where you're not, and all of a sudden, your enjoyment, your gratitude takes a sudden spike down. 
and you're no longer enjoying the present moment. Well, what if, what, what is that about us? You think that happens in La Jolla, 92037, that we might be a little bit confused, perhaps, that who we are, our worth, our specialness, our value is tied up into what we have. Whether it's the amount of cars, homes, bank accounts, whether it's where our kids go to college, whether it's how many followers we have, that says, I have this, I have this. I, uh, about a year ago, started working with Bob Goff, who some of you know, has been a friend of Steve's, comes and speaks here a lot, books, famous, he's like a famous Christian dude. And I started helping Bob about a year ago, help him uh, uh, create a podcast. So I'm the host, I'm on every one of the episodes of Bob Goff's podcast. And I didn't do it because that would do something for me. I sincerely wanted to help. I sincerely felt like I could help. But in the side of my mind, not the back of my mind, I'm like, this will be interesting to see when all these people know who I am. And a week ago, we had this mark where a million downloads for this podcast, first few months, which is a, a fast deal in podcasts. And you know what? Nobody's called me yet. <laughs> I should say, one time, a school counselor in Oklahoma went on LinkedIn after he heard a podcast and said, hey, did you, I, heard, I saw you worked in schools. We had a 20-minute conversation that went nowhere. So that's the one time that having that platform for me has meant something. It, it hasn't meant anything. It still is a nice thing to do to support a friend of mine. That's it. I thought there'd be something on the other side of that equation. I am what I have. But Jesus helps us know it's not who you are. It's not who you are. Prove it. Prove that you're valuable. Prove that you're special. Prove that you're something. Go get stuff. Go have stuff. And he's like, no, that's not who you are. Third temptation. I am what others say about me. I am what people think about me. Jesus, uh, the devil takes him to Jerusalem, the highest point, and says, if you're the son of God, jump off. Jump off in front of everyone. Go to the center of your world, go in the highest building, jump off. Angels will, will protect you, and everyone will see and marvel at how wonderful and spectacular you are, Jesus. Imagine if everyone knew who you are. Imagine. Imagine if they knew about you, what you could do, what your wealth was, what your value. Imagine if, if they knew, if they only knew. And how do I know this is my thing? This is mine, by the way. Because when I see somebody on Facebook, again, it's like an old high school friend, and I'm like, oh, I, wonder if they, I wonder if they met me now, what they would think. Like, that still matters. Like, that still matters. Is that a temptation for you? That's if they only knew, if they only said, if, if I had those comments, I was, uh, a friend of mine who was in the first service, she was a professor, she said, yeah, there's this whole thing called rate my professor, where you get real-time, extremely honest feedback from your students. You can go on there as a professor. It's really designed for students to know what am I getting into if I sign up for that class. And I told her, my sister was a professor for one year, and she got a negative comment from one of her four students in a grad program. And she was like, I can't handle this. I'm out. Never taught again. What happens when someone doesn't get us? What happens when you receive that criticism? Where do you go with that? What do you take that? I know I find myself having make-believe arguments in my head in the middle of the night. I don't know about you. What I would say if they said something to me and how I would respond. And then before I even know, I'm like, that's never even happened. Like, that's I'm spending a lot of energy, time, brain calories on defending myself and explaining myself to people that don't even exist. This is a big, huge temptation. And it leads us down, I'd call them crooked paths. Because when we build our lives around what we do, then you always have to do more. When you build your life around what you have, you have to have more. When you build your life on what they say about you, you have to get them, you have to polish it, you have to make sure... And there's always going to be a leak somewhere. Someone's always going to have accomplished more. Someone's always going to have more. Someone's always going to misunderstand you. And that turns into deep, lived anxiety in us. Anxiety that I, I'm in charge. I can't handle this. Deep, foundational anxiety about our lives. And then Jesus, when you go to church, you start hearing, you don't have to live that way. You do not have to live that way. 
This does not have to be your lived reality. Your lived reality doesn't have to be anxiety. It could be peace. What are you talking about? How do we do that? Go to uh, two slides ahead. Uh, there's a, a, sorry, one more scripture verse. One more. There it is. What does Jesus keep returning to? How is he able to say, not true, not true, not true? He is living out of this reality that who he is, what he heard, what was said about him from the truest, most honest, realest source, God the Father, was you are my beloved son. Not just son, beloved son. Special, chosen, valuable, you're it. I'm well pleased with you right now. And you haven't done anything, you don't have anything, and no one knows about you yet. And then you continue to see Jesus, if you read the scriptures, they're almost throwaway lines in between one story to the next, where it says Jesus went away to the desert, to a lonely place, to the wilderness, to the hills, to the mountains, to the lake, to pray. It's almost like what Jesus kept doing again and again was returning to that voice, to remind all the, everyone wants me to do more, they're trying to give me stuff, uh, people are misunderstanding me. All of that, as he walks through life, he continues to go back to the source, to the presence, to what's really true. This last summer, I <clears throat> accidentally signed up to go to uh, uh, summer camp with Young Life uh, with middle schoolers, because my son is in middle school now. And the middle school years have come upon us in our household. The teenager in our home, I told someone recently, uh, the moment we had a, a, a child and then having a teenager were the two, have been the two defining moments so far in my personal identity. Things I did not want to happen are happening. Things out of my control are now in control. And it's been a very disruptive force. And I, if you had talked to me a year ago as my son was entering a middle school, the entire year, just battles. And uh, uh, you will not act that way in my house. And like just constant trying to control it, trying to get, and what I realized deep down through those months was there's just a deep level of sadness underneath all that for me. And so I'm reacting in anger, and you will not in my house, and, and, but what's underneath that is, where's my little boy? Where's my best buddy? Where's my little guy? I miss that. I want that back. So uh, all year, my son has been saying, we're going to camp, right? We're going to camp, right? And every time I tell him, uh-huh, yeah. And then the Young Life people are like, you haven't signed up for camp yet. And I would say, I, uh, uh. And then I go to my wife and say, I don't, I don't think I can do this. It's, it's five days. Uh, it, it's, it's, there's no cell phone right there. There's no Wi-Fi there. I can't just take five days off of work. Like, and you know me. I, I don't really do well in the wilderness. And I like to have my own space. And I got out of youth ministry. I don't want to go back to youth ministry. I'm sick of kids. I work with kids all day. But I just, and she would just listen to me and she'd say, I know, I know, it's a big deal. It's a big cost. And then she would always end the conversation. You're not seriously thinking about not going, though. He wants you to go and you're seriously thinking about not going. And I would every time, like, oh, okay. And then a week before, the Young Life guy calls, you need to sign up. Are you sign you're, you're coming. We're counting on you. We need you there. It's like a ratio of kids to chaperones. I'm like, yeah, yes, yes. But I can bring my laptop, right? He's like, you could, but you, there's nothing you can do it, with it. So the day before, I found out that uh, I'd heard about where the camp was. It was called Woodleaf. And I just imagined the camps I've been to are like, I don't know, farthest would be maybe a forest home and up by Big Bear. But I made the mistake a day before looking up, like, where's the route to Woodleaf? And if you and I were driving fast on the highway, it's a 10 and a half hour drive. But we took a bus. We took a bus with 55 middle schoolers, <laughs> 22 of them being boys. <clears throat> we took a bus, and it took 13 hours. And we left at 3 a.m. Yeah. And the entire, and it was not like so that we could get there and rest. <laughs> it was 1 a.m. bedtimes every night. It was 6 a.m. wake-up calls every morning. And the Young Life staff came up to me on the bus on the way up. He said, hey, good news. You know how we were going to have two cabins of boys? We're going to be in one cabin. 
And I, I literally felt like my stomach dropped. That's my, that is my worst case scenario, no joke. So we had 22 middle school boys in our cabin. And it was complete, I, I, I mean, I, I'm not exaggerating, I'm, I'm honest, it's one of the hardest weeks of my life. On many levels, one, sleep and being uncomfortable, but the another level was, I just call it, I was the ugly duckling the entire week. Uh, are you my mother? Remember the ugly duckling? I don't feel like I belong here. Are, what, how do I do this? I, I, half of my time I wanted to go to the Young Life staff and say, do you know who I am? Do you know that I'm on the Bob Goff podcast, for crying out loud? I speak to kids every day. Do you? But Because I was in the back row, sitting Indian style, having my back hurt for five days. Do you know who I am? I'm a grown man. Why am I on a bunk bed? Do you, do you know what, what kind of coffee I like to drink? Do you know what camp food does to me? Like, do you know? And, I, and, and there was really no, I had a role as a, as a counselor, as a camp counselor, but I didn't know my role. I'm used to college kids. That's, that's my background. You know what college kids are like? They want to have deep conversations about thoughtful things for hours. And they would want to listen to what I had to say. Oh, it was lovely. I miss college kids. You know what middle school kids want to know? Are you playing? Are you in or not? Why are you still here? And the next layer was my interactions with my son. Coming off a year of uh, grunts and eye rolls and no, you won't. And here I am at camp, and it was the second day, and he stepped on a bees, severe allergic reactions to bees. His foot blew up, couldn't even put his foot in a shoe, and, and so many times I want to say, you're so lucky I'm here. Because the other boys don't have their parents here. They have to fend for themselves. And with him, I was taking care of him, but the interactions we had throughout the day were nothing that I wanted. There was not one time he came up to me and said, Daddy, I'm so thank, I'm just, I can't believe you took a week off of work for me. <laughs> are, are you sleeping okay, Dad? I know, you, I know you enjoy your seven, eight hours. Are you okay? Uh, he never once came and put his head on my shoulder. He never once said thank you. You know what he would do? About three or four times a day, he would walk up to wherever I was during free time, where I was fi- trying to find my way, trying to find someone to talk to, trying to figure out which game to play with kids. And he would come up to me, and, and I would think every time I'd get kind of excited, oh, here he comes. Hey, buddy. And he's like, hey. He wouldn't look at me, just kind of stand there. I was like, how's it going? Good. And I was, what, what are you doing? He's like, nothing. And then he would kind of ask for something, like, what time's dinner? And I'm, uh, 5.30. Or he would say, like, do you have any chapstick? I'm like, yeah, some chapstick. And then he would take it and then walk away. And I would always resist the urge of like, bye. <laughs> you know, I'm okay too. Uh, I just didn't say anything. You just let him walk away. And then three or four hours he'd come back. He wouldn't sit next to me at the meals. I mean, he just didn't, we didn't talk. But for the next couple of weeks when I got back, what I would realize what he was doing, what I, I, I realized what he was doing, is that he would come up to me and he would stand there. Because I, I, I got to watch him a lot. I'd watch how difficult it is to be a teenage boy. I got to see it again. I got to feel it through his lens. I'd see him kind of stand out and build this huge field. There's basketball courts over there and there's kids doing a zip line over there. And you just kind of see like him thinking, okay, who's safe? Who do I play with? Who where can I, those boys are really rough at basketball. I'm not really good. Uh, and then, but it's all, it's not, he's not thinking. It's just kind of reacting. And then he would go do something and he'd get punched or hurt or knocked down or, or some, I mean, middle school boys, they just, there's zero filter, no impulse control. That hat looks stupid on your face. Like, they just say that sort of thing. And it's just real time. And so he's just like, ah, uh, ah, uh, uh, all day long. And then he'd come over to me for a minute. And I, I think he would just stand there. And I wouldn't say much, but he just would, like, be in my presence. And it'd be this little sense of, like, again, he's not having any thoughts. It's just happening to him. Am I Okay. Is this place safe? Is this going to be okay? Am I going to make it? Is it okay if that kid doesn't like me? Just kind of sit there, and you just see him decompress, reorient to his surroundings, I think be filled up. And it would take a minute or two, and he'd have what he needed, and just go back to what he was doing. And I'm so thankful I never kind of aborted that process for him and said, what are you doing with me? 
Just let him get filled up again by his father. And so when you look at Jesus, when you look at the rhythm that he had, these huge temptations to make a life for himself, make a name, do more, have more, get other people to be respected and impressed by him. And he kept saying, no, 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 that's not true. I am safe. I am okay. I am deeply loved. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to have any more. I don't have to get any I am in this. There's actually a real experience that we can have as people of faith. We can actually do that. Whether you're a school teacher, a stay-at-home mom, a business executive, a surgeon, we can actually, throughout the day, every few hours, return and reorient and remember what's true. And remember that whatever we hooked ourselves into, whatever lie that we've been believing, whatever version of life we thought was going to get us something that we were looking for, we can actually pull the hook out and say, I know that's not true. Jesus, be my center. Jesus, be my presence. That's real. That is the invitation that Jesus has for us. That's the life that he was modeling for us. And it could be true for you. So this week, I just want to encourage you to do a little bit of that homework, that uncomfortable What's my thing? What's my, if I get this plus this plus this, then equals, what is that? Just write it out. Get clear and clear about it. And then find your way, find your rhythm. Is it listen to worship songs? Is it look at scripture? Is it just a, is it meditation? Is it just my thing these days? Is Jesus, help me find my center. That's it. And it looks, if you're watching me, like I'm having a deep breath. In the middle of a meeting, in my car, the dinner table, and maybe someday during soccer practice. Jesus, help me find my center. So Lord, help us find our center in you. You are real. You are here. You are available. You are our center. So help us to find you. Help us to see this equation that we've created for what it is. Not true. Just an illusion. Just a temptation. You are real. And your love is real and available. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, like Scott just told your story. Scott, thank you uh, for telling us our story by sharing yours. Uh, that's what authority and empathy looks like. Uh, it, it, it's the way we answer the question, why do I do what I do? And it comes in the context of this, understanding God's presence in you, uh, in your life changes everything. So we start with him to understand us. If we start with us, we'll never understand him. Right? So Scott, thanks again uh, for blessing us and, and redirecting us. Because God has a plan for you. He wants to do a work in you. And that work begins with everything you heard Scott say about who you are, what you have, what you're made for, uh, what is your purpose. And it's in that relationship with him that we come alive. And through that life in him, we able, we're able to not only be blessed by him, but bless others in his name. And so we come to time now in the, in the worship service, we call it offering. And, and it's be kind of sort of reduced to a simple thing of this is when people give money. It certainly is that. But there's so many ways that people give money in this congregation that oftentimes people have already given their money through other means before they even show up for worship. But we still have the offering. Why? Because it's a time that we say, Lord, I'm offering myself to you. I'm opening my heart to you. I'm opening my mind to you. What does God want to convict you of? What does he want to confirm in you? What, is, what does he want to comfort you? What does he want to confront you? And so as we offer ourselves to him, we put ourselves in a place of vulnerability under his authority so that we can receive the thing he wants to give us that we can get nowhere else from no one else. We can stop pretending that somebody else is perfect enough to be what we need because he is the only one who's perfect enough to be who we need. And it's out of that engagement with him that we offer ourselves to him. We've heard the word of God. We've sung songs of praise to him. We've heard people pray over us. That sets us up to say, Lord, I'm offering me to you. Based on your invitation, I'm offering me to you. And what we find is that God gives us everything we need in those moments, whether it's in a worship service or a daily quiet time with him, in that conversation with a person in a life group, in those experiences at camp or other places, you're serving God somewhere. These are the patterns that help us understand God's work in our life and ask, answer that question, why do we do what we do? So, Lord Jesus, as we bring our tithes and offerings to you, but most importantly, as we bring ourselves to you, we're confident that you will meet us there. 
that we'll hear those words that we are your beloved sons and daughters by faith, that you have a plan and a purpose for us, that it's not uh, what we do and what we have or what people think of us. It's what you tell us about who we are, what you show us, what you've put in our hands to use to your glory and the blessing of other people, what we can do to reflect the love that you've given us in ways that other people experience it as well. So we continue to worship you as we bring uh, ourselves to you and, and, and return to you that which you've entrusted to us. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
for leading us in worship. Hey, before you leave, uh, inside this bulletin, you see the inside cover, there's a, there's a form there. If you want to let us know who you are so we can send you information about what we're doing and include you in that, we'd love to do that. If we can pray for you for anything, uh, write that down in our staff, and we have about, well, we have dozens of other people um, who pray every week for the requests given to us. And sometimes we have like 100 requests, sometimes we have 50 requests, but we pray th- diligently through those prayer requests for you. Also, uh, if today before you leave, you want prayer for anything that concerns you, for yourself or for somebody else, uh, go right out here around the corner to this beautiful prayer garden, and there'll be people who will be there to pray with you. You don't even have to tell them what you want prayer for. Just say, please pray for me. But if you do have a specific request that you don't mind telling them, they can pray more specifically uh, for you. God wants to do a work in you. Nobody can stop the Lord from the work He's doing, but except stopping listening to Him. Stopping walking with Him, stopping uh, obeying Him, uh, stopping using what He's entrusting to you. You can't stop Him, but you can stop listening to Him and benefiting from Him. Don't do that. And perhaps today you're saying, I don't know how to have this relationship. Open your heart to Him. Invite Him to come into your life as Lord and Savior. Perhaps you've been far from Him and you think, well, I'm I'm feeling kind of guilty that I've been so far from Him. I'm not worthy to come back. Are you kidding me? This is your homecoming. Open your heart to Him. And, and re, re, restart that relationship with him. And if you're feeling like you, you, you're just knocking the ball out of the park, be careful. Lord, I can handle this. Ah, right, yeah. Uh, instead, say, Lord, thank you for helping me handle this. Thank you for helping me use wisely what you've entrusted to me. I give you all glory and praise so that I can bless other people in your name. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord who loves you more than you can ask or even imagine give you everything you need to walk in newness and fullness of life with Him, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.